Mark chapter 14, verse 12. Mark chapter 14, verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. The disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came to the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful, and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as, that, and as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Please pray with me. Father, you are holy. You hate sin. What your eyes cannot even bear to look upon evil. But we are sinners, Lord. We've done what we should not do. We've failed to do what we should have done. We've rebelled against you in your kingdom. And for it, we deserve death. But we thank you for Jesus Christ that he is our Passover lamb, that he is the one who died to take our place for our sins. Would you show us, Lord, this gospel is the most important thing, the best news that we'll ever hear. And would you convict our hearts because we think of so many other things more important. We praise you for Christ. We ask you to teach us of him today. In his name we pray. Amen. So come with me to Egypt. Close your eyes. We're going to run the time machine together. Okay, ready? Woo! <laughs> Alright, hey, have you ever been in a time machine before? How do you know what noise it makes? Okay. <laughs> We're in Egypt. It's the year 1445 BC. You're still a middle schooler, but now you're a slave. You're a slave. Listen up, remember? Shh, one person talking. Thank you. You're a slave to the most powerful nation on earth, Egypt. 
For 430 years, your people have been the slaves of Egypt. And as a slave, life is hard. Pharaoh and his taskmasters force you to work from dawn until dusk, mixing clay, forming bricks, carrying construction material, building entire cities, plowing and harvesting in his fields, not for yourself, but for him. Your days are full of dirt, sweat, and tears. You have no future, no freedom, no hope. You have not had a day off your whole life. You can't even remember the last time your body didn't ache. You can't even remember the last time you had a hope or peace. There's nothing you can do to fight. There's nowhere for you to run. All that remains is work from the day you're born all the way until you die. For years, for centuries, remember 430 years you've been in Egypt, your people have been crying out to God for deliverance, saying, help us, God, deliver us to God, save your people. And he has not answered. Had God forgotten his promises? Had God abandoned his people? Then out of nowhere, this guy named Moses shows up. He's 80 years old, a shepherd, not exactly your hero type. But he claimed that God had called him to set your people free. I mean, at first it's kind of hard to believe him. But after just a few months, he had entirely turned Egypt upside down. Through Moses, God turned the Nile into blood. He filled the land with disgusting frogs. He turned the dust into gnats. He swarmed the whole land with flies. He killed the Egyptian livestock with disease. He infected the Egyptians themselves with boils on their skin. He destroyed the crops with hail. He sent the locusts to eat everything. He covered the land with the darkness of darkness. The darkest of darkness, both from day till night. So finally, God was answering your prayers. Finally, he was doing something. But it's terrifying. Who else is like Yahweh, your God? Who else could bring this superpower Egypt to its knees in just a few weeks? And how far would God go to set his people free? I mean, when would this end? You saw God's mighty deeds, and you feared the God of heaven and earth. Then just a few days ago, Moses had come out. He promised, this is the last plague. The last plague, and then we'll go free. He declared to all Egypt in Exodus 12, On the tenth day of the first month of the year, every man shall take a lamb, and your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You shall keep it with you until the fourteenth day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. They shall then take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts, and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. And in this manner you shall eat it, your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Tonight is the 14th. It's the 14th of the first month. And just as the sun is setting, your dad asks you to come and help him. 
He hands you the rope tied around the lamb's neck. He says, hold this. this." So you go together, leading the lamb out into the street. It goes trembling, but silent. And in the fading twilight, you see all the other dads with their lambs waiting for twilight. Then with a nod, your dad kneels down, knife unsheathed. He lifts up the the lamb's head, and with one swift motion, slits its throat. The rope in your hand goes limp as hot tears roll down your cheek, and as the blood of the lamb splatters to the ground, you cannot help but think, why a lamb? Why did it have to be so pure? And why did it have to die like this? Quickly, your dad collects some of the dripping blood into a clay dish, then he lets the lamb to the ground. He sheathes his knife, hands the dish to you, and the blood spills on your trembling hands. It's warm. He picks up the lamb and motions for you to go back into the house. But right before entering, he stops, takes some branches of hyssop, dips it into the dish of blood, and paints the door frame of your house, muttering a prayer. Yahweh our God, you are one. Judge Egypt, but pass over this house. See the blood of the lamb and have mercy on us. All right, step back in the time machine. All right, we're back. That is the first Passover celebration, the first death of the Lamb for the sake of Israel, on the day when God inaugurated the freedom of Egypt from slavery. This is the event that the nation of Israel has celebrated every single year. The children would ask their fathers, Why do we do this? Why do we kill this lamb and paint our doors? This is like really weird, right? And the fathers would respond, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Egypt and houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. Why did it have to be a lamb? Why did the lamb have to die? Because this is the cost of sin. A pure, innocent, unblemished lamb must die as a substitute for the firstborn. It's an object lesson that demonstrates this is the cost of sin. Death. This is what it takes to be forgiven. Death. This is what it takes for you, Israel, to become God's people. People. Death. 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 But in our passage, almost 1,500 years after the first Passover, we come to the last Passover. The last Passover lamb to be slaughtered for the forgiveness of sins. Who's that Passover lamb? When John the Baptist saw Jesus, he shouted, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world! Now, Jesus is not a woolly lamb with four legs and and white. That's not what he's saying, right? What is he saying? He's saying that Jesus is the sacrifice, the last sacrifice that died in our place, for our sins, to take away the penalty that we deserve. Sin is rebellion against God. And for such rebellion, every single one of us deserves to die. Sin deserves death. If God killed us right now, like this, that would be perfectly just. Because the wrath of a holy God rests upon our head for our rebellion against him. But Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's the final sacrifice, the only good enough sacrifice. 
He paid the penalty we deserve. He died in our place for our sin so that we would be saved from the wrath of God. To be forgiven, to be saved, you must believe that this Jesus, this is the only Savior, that he died for your sins and his death alone is enough to make you clean. And if his blood covers you, just like the blood of the Lamb covers the door, then the wrath of God passes over you. You're forgiven. You're free from the slavery of sin. This is what's called the gospel message. And my sixth graders, what are the four parts of the gospel message? You need, go shout it out. First is? That's the last. First is? God. Second is? Man. Third is? Uh, No, that's that's fourth. Christ is third. Then faith. Good. Good job. God, man, Christ, faith. All the components of the gospel. You hitch. Thank you. You need all the parts of the gospel to get the whole thing. Now, question. Question. How did Jesus die? Not physically how did he die, but what, maybe he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, like, he's got an accident somewhere. And, oh, man, that's such a tragedy. Or maybe, like, he wasn't supposed to die, but he showed up one day and, oops, they killed him. Was it a mistake? Was it a mistake? No, right? Absolutely no. His death was planned. Every single detail, from the meaning to the means, from his betrayal by Judas to his abandonment by all his disciples, from the unjust trial to the whip on his back, from the nails on his hands and his feet to the mockery on the cross, all of it is according to God's predetermined plan. Plan. The first Passover, just like the last Passover, was all according to God's perfect plan. It was not an accident. It was on purpose. And Jesus knew it. He wasn't a victim. He wasn't shocked. He knew exactly what he was getting himself into. And this entire passage today shows that he was in control of every single detail. Meaning he planned his own death and he planned his own resurrection. The key idea today, if you want to fill in the blank on the top, is that Jesus, the Passover Lamb of God, came to die on purpose. Jesus, the Lamb of God, came to die on purpose. I have one main point for this sermon, and it's that Jesus was determined to die. Jesus was determined to die. First point, Jesus, was, Jesus prepared the Passover. Look at verse 12 again with me. Verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will we have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? The Passover is like a, like a feast of some sort, right? Um, how many days is Christmas? One. 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 But how, how, many, how many days of vacation do you get for Christmas? Fourteen. Fourteen. Okay, thank you. Fourteen. You get two weeks, right? So, in a similar way, Passover is one day, but the unleavened feast is like a week long. So they get the whole thing to celebrate, right? That's how it works. Just like us, Christmas is one day, we get about a week and a half, two weeks to celebrate, right? So Jesus' disciples, being faithful Jews, they want to celebrate this feast with Jesus, so they ask, hey, where are we going to where are we eat this meal together? Right? They don't own houses in Jerusalem. They've got to figure a place to eat. So Jesus says, hey, find this guy in the city, in verse 13. Find a man carrying a jar of water. Meet him. Follow him. Wherever he enters, you know, that'll be the place. Which is kind of weird. Kind of cool. The main point, though, is that Jesus had already reserved a room. Look at verse 15. He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. The disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. 
Jesus was not running away from this, this night. He was not running away from his death, right? Now imagine, if, let's say Jesus was trying to not die. He would not go into Jerusalem, right? All his enemies were in Jerusalem. They were waiting for him. They knew he would show up. If he, did, if he was trying to avoid dying, he would run. That's not what he did. He went straight to Jerusalem, to the Passover banquet. He came in order to die. He was determined to go to the cross. Number two, Jesus prophesied his betrayal. Look at verse 17. It was evening, he came with the twelve. And when they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you twelve, my disciples, one of you will betray me. One who's eating with me. Now, okay, who, who betrayed Jesus? Shout it out, one, two, three. Judas. Judas. Everyone knows that. Everyone knows that. But you realize, none of the disciples knew that. Look at verse 19. They, the disciples, began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? Is it me, Jesus? Am I going to betray you? Right? How come? Because Jesus loved Judas so well that none of his disciples could tell the difference. Jesus even washed Judas' feet. Can you imagine that? You're washing the feet of someone, you're humiliating yourself for someone who you know is going to kill you, who you know is going to lead to your betrayal. That's how much Jesus loved Judas. Right? If Judas was suspected, right, and Jesus, Jesus says, oh yeah, when are you going to betray me? All the disciples would be like, oh yeah, dude, that Judas guy, he's a little sus, you know, he's got all the money. It's him, dude, don't trust him, right? But that's not what they said. That's not what they said. Never in a million years could they imagine that someone would on purpose betray Jesus. So that's why they ask, am I going to do it? Am I going to accidentally betray you? Am I going to be the weak link? Jesus doesn't say. Look at verse 20. He says, it is one of the twelve, one who's dipping bread in the dish with me. In verse 21, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Why does Jesus say this? It's because he's warning Judas in a way that only Judas would understand. Without naming him, Jesus basically says, Judas, I know. And I want you to know that I know. If you do this, you will reap the punishment that you deserve. It is a bad idea. And yet he knew that Judas would still go through with it. In John 6, it says that Jesus knew from the beginning who would believe in him, and from the beginning, who it was that would betray him. So Judas knew, excuse me, Jesus knew that Judas would betray him before Judas knew that Judas would betray him. Right? And yet, Christ loved him, and loved him all the way until his death. If you knew your friend was going to betray you, and lead to your death, wouldn't you do everything possible to not die? Right? Maybe you'd like, not be friends with that person anymore. Maybe you stop hanging out with them. Maybe you try to get him in jail before he could try to kill you, right? But not Jesus. That's not what Jesus did. He could have exposed Judas at any point in time. He could have revealed Judas was stealing and Judas would be gone. But he never does. He allows the traitor to betray him. Why? Because Jesus is determined to die. He had a mission to fulfill. So what's that mission? Next section. He inaugurated the new covenant. Verse 22. As they're eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. 
Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now there's lots in just these couple verses. There's Passover symbolism, institution of the Lord's Supper, which we call communion, the meaning of communion, the unity of the remaining 12, 11 disciples, inauguration of new era salvation, and many, many ties to the Old Testament, uh, Jesus' earthly reign in the kingdom of God, and we're going to talk about none of those things, okay? We're going to talk about just part of verse 24. The part is, Jesus says, This is my blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. First, who can tell me what is a covenant? Go ahead, Becky. It's a promise. promise. Good. A covenant is a promise, particularly a promise from God. And this covenant is what the Old Testament calls the new covenant. So it's the new covenant, which means it's special in some way, right? In Jeremiah 31... God promises that he will make his people his he will make his people his people and he will become their God. He says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's the new covenant. He promises to transform people from the inside out to love him. To love him. So when Jesus is the is what I'm saying that Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's not just like copying a ritual. Like, oh, okay, this is cool, you know, has like this ancient history, and wow, like now I'm like number, I don't know, 1,450-something, right? That's not what he's doing. He's actually saying that all of those Passover sacrifices point to me. He's saying I am the point. He's saying I am the real Passover, the better Passover sacrifice. That's why he's inaugurating a new covenant. Second question, who are the many at the end of verse 24. Jesus says it's poured out for the many, right? What's the many here? The many doesn't just mean a lot of people. The many specifically means God's chosen people. Earlier, Jesus had said in Mark, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, it doesn't just mean lots of people. It means his special chosen people. All of them he will die for. Third, what is the blood of the covenant, right? I mean, were the disciples actually drinking real physical blood? No, no. What were they drinking? They're drinking wine. But the blood is represented by the wine because they're both red, right? And by the blood, Jesus means his death. He says, by my death, by the pouring out of my blood, by my murder, by my sacrifice, he's saying that he will pay for the sins of his people to bring them into the promise of God. This is the blood of the covenant, which was poured out for many. That was Jesus' mission, which he could only accomplish by death. He needed to die in order for there to be salvation. And that's why he was determined to go to the cross. Fourthly, Jesus foretold his abandonment. Look at verse 26. Verse 26 with me. When they sung a hymn, They went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Basically, Jesus prophesies, All of you will leave me. Right? All of you will leave me. But now notice what he says next, verse 28. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. What's this? This is a promise of the resurrection. Right? After he dies, he will be raised up. He promises his resurrection. He actually already had told them this in chapter 8 of Mark, chapter 9 of Mark, and chapter 10 of Mark. So it's not the first time, right? But the disciples don't get it. Look at verse 29. Peter said to Jesus, Even though all fall away, 
I will not. What do you think? Is that true? No. No. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me. How many times? Once? Three. Three. But Peter said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all said the same. And I noticed two things. First, the disciples couldn't understand Jesus' death and resurrection. They didn't get it. They, had, they could not believe that he would really die and really rise again from the dead. And the reason why is because they did not understand their sin. They did not understand their sin. Fundamentally, they didn't really think their sin was that serious. They thought that a new government where Jesus is king is more important, or solving the problems of their earthly life was more important, not having their sins forgiven. And I wonder if that describes you. Maybe you're here visiting for the first time with a friend, or the second time, and we love that you're here. I'm so thankful you're here. But you hear all this stuff about Jesus and about the Bible and... I don't know, it just kind of seems like religious talk to you. You know, those crazy Christians doing their crazy Christian thing. Few youth group and church are just another place where an adult, aka me, just goes blah, 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 and keeps talking, right? Or you go to a small group and they're like blah, 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 talking all the time. And you don't really care. You don't care. All you really want to do is just hang out with your friends. Right? Or maybe you're a church kid. You know the gospel story. You know Judas betrayed Jesus. You know that Judas, you know that Peter denied Jesus three times. You know all this stuff. You know that for God so loved the world that whoever believes in it, that he sent his only begotten son, whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, right? Easy. You know that. But if you're honest, you don't really love this message. It's just, ah, I learned that in children's ministry. Ah, I don't really care that much. When do we get to have snacks? When do we get to have play basketball? When do we get to do really fun stuff? Jesus, to you, is just like another historical figure. Maybe like George Washington or, I don't know, Alexander the Great. Just some dude that lived a long time ago, right? But he's not actually your Savior or your Lord. Whoever you are, if this gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection is not the most wonderful thing you've ever heard, the problem is not this gospel. The root problem is the same as the disciples. You don't think your sin's that serious. You don't think your sin is that serious? Well, I don't think anyone here would say they're perfect, that you sometimes do bad things. You don't really think it's that bad. You make excuses. Oh, it was a mistake. Or, oh, I was just tired and hungry. Or, I didn't really mean it. Or, my favorite, she made me do it. Right? But before God in heaven... Those excuses don't work. Your sin is not a mistake. It's rebellion. It's rebellion against the God who made you. Sin is not just you did something bad, but it's actually you saying, God, I hate you. Refusing to listen to authorities like parents and teachers is in in actuality rejecting God because he's the one that gave them that authority. When you curse and lie and mock and gossip, it's not just negative emotions coming out. It's actually you attacking someone whom God loves, ignoring what God thinks, conveniently not caring what the guy talking about the Bible is saying, not caring what God has commanded. is not harmless. It's equivalent to going up to God's face and saying, Shut up, God! I don't care what you think. God made you. He owns you. 
more than your parents. And yet we don't listen to him. Sin, all sin, is, again, rebellion. In your sin, you say that you refuse to listen to God, your maker, the one who gives you every single breath. And you say, no, I'm going to do what I want to do, because I want to do it. And by your sin, you make God your enemy. As you persist in it, God is opposed to you. Second, notice that the disciples trusted more in themselves. They trusted more in themselves than in Jesus. Right? Jesus says, you're going to do this. And they say, nah, right? They're absolutely confident they will not deny him. They will not abandon him. They said, no, no, we'll even die with you, Jesus. And that's like, it's not very smart. Like, remember, Jesus is the one who walked on water, who multiplied the bread and the fish. And if he's sitting in front of you telling you, this is going to happen, the wise thing they do is say, okay, Lord, right? Okay. But no, the disciples instead say, no, 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 no. Your word's not true, Jesus. Our word is true. No matter what, we will not abandon you. Well-intentioned. I'm sure they, they said it genuinely, but still foolish because they exalted their word above God's. We're not so different, right? We hold the word of God in our hands or on our lap. And yet, we don't care what it says. Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. 1 Peter 5.7, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, casting all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. 1 John 3.23, This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son and love one another, just as he commanded us. But what do we say? I don't need to fear God. I don't need to listen to him. We say, I don't need to be humble. I'm proud of what I've done. I'm proud of who I am. We say, I don't need to believe God. I don't need to love other people, especially those who don't love me. I'm going to get what I want, when I want, however I want it, and I'll bulldoze anyone who stands in my way. That's us. The disciples were fools because they didn't listen to Jesus. We are too. This is the fundamental root of sin. We reject God. We reject his word. But that's actually not enough. Instead, we, we also try to kick him off his throne murder him, and then take his place as kings and queens, exalting ourselves to be God. Why do you think they killed Jesus? Because they didn't like that he claimed to be their master. What are rebels in this kingdom, in God's kingdom, on God's earth, in God's creation? What do rebels in such a kingdom deserve? Death. Eternal death. So what do we need to be saved? We need someone to take our sins and cast them as far away from the east as from the west. The further you go east, west is still behind you. Therefore, as far as east is from the west is an infinite amount. You cannot get your sins back if this person casts them that far. You, we need someone to drink up the wrath of God. So there's no more for us. We need someone to make a way for us to be forgiven. We need someone to transform us from enemies to saints, from rebels to sons and daughters, from haters of God into worshipers and lovers of this God. We need the Lamb of God, who takes away not just the sins of the world, but takes away your sin, 
and mine. We need Jesus Christ, this lamb who is determined to die. I want to read one more passage with you. Can you turn with me to Romans chapter 5? Romans chapter 5. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts, then Romans. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 with me. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. It writes, it reads, For while we were still weak, stop there. Weak here means spiritually unable, spiritually powerless, or helpless is a way to describe it. While we're still weak, unable, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Ungodly here means those who hate God, those who are rebels against God, those who have rejected God. Verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But how did God show his love? God shows his love for us, and that while we were still good people? No. While we were still trying to be the best person we could be? No. While we're still, you know, going to church and be, you know, clean ourselves up a little bit? No. While we are still sinners, that means enemies of God, rebels in his kingdom, fools who reject his word, Christ died for us. Pray with me. Father, you sent your son, and we treat him so lightly. We think his gospel is just a story, just something nice to talk about. But Lord, I pray that you'd show us our sin and show us how truly helpless we are, how dead we are, how powerless we are, how doomed we are, Lord. If we don't have a Savior, if we don't have a sacrifice, if we don't have the one and only Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Lord, I thank you so much for every person here. I thank you that you have given us this true gospel. And I pray, Lord, you change us from the inside out. Not just to do more Christian things, not just to know more Christian truth. But Lord, to love you because you loved us first. Thank you so much for all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.